You're listening to Coffee Break with New York Wiki. I'm your host, Julie hockeiser Ilkovich. Welcome to another very special episode of our podcast featuring an amazing New York Wiki live event. This panel featured an incredible conversation about women in the workplace between Shelly Zalis, CEO of the Female Quotient and the creator of the Girls' Lounge, and Meredith Coppett-Levian, Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of the New York Times. The panel was moderated by our very own New York Wiki president and recent podcast guest, Judith Harrison, who is the Senior Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion at Weber Shanwick. This panel was hosted by the New York Times, which is also our amazing sponsor for this episode. Stay tuned to hear more about the New York Times podcast, The Daily. Thank you to our wonderful sponsor, and we hope you enjoy this inspiring conversation. Bloomberg LP and a past, past president of New York Women in Communications and delighted to be here tonight. How many of you are employees of the New York Times and members of New York Women in Communications as a result of the corporate commitment? Awesome. Welcome. So we are so grateful to the New York Times for hosting us, but also for being corporate members. And you all know the benefits of being a corporate member. We have nine corporate members. We have Bloomberg, Condé Nast, Dow Jones, Estee Lauder, Hearst, IPG, Meredith, Quantcast, and the New York Times. And what we love about our corporate members is you know, first and foremost, the benefit of bringing events like this into your corporations um, and helping to advance the conversation around uh, what's important to us as colleagues and as business leaders and how do we help advance and support one another. So we're so glad you're here tonight. I have the privilege of, if, and by the way, if you are not members, how many of you are companies in this room and your company is not a corporate member? So you were, you were bold raising your hand because we're on to you right now. <laughs> At the end of this, we would love for you to talk to either Teresa or Anna, who will be outside, who can tell you a lot more about how to become corporate members and what we will do to deliver on your behalf. So I am so excited to introduce an amazing panel tonight. Um, I'm going to start in the middle with Judith, who is our current president, and um, we're so grateful to have her on the panel tonight. Judith drives programs designed to build a multicultural workforce that leverages diverse backgrounds and perspectives to create innovative solutions for clients and an inspiring, high-performance workplace. And as a former employee of IPG with Judith, I can tell you she absolutely does that. She works across the agency, committed to the diversity and inclusion commitment of not only Weber Shanwick, but IPG. Since joining Weber Shanwick in 2006, Judith has guided the firm as a champion of diversity and inclusion with countless honors. Get ready for this. There's a long list. And I'm, I'm not even giving you all of them. Um, she was honored with an award for the PR News Diversity Heroes Award as Organization of the Year. She brought the United Negro College Fund together with the PR industry to form PRIME, which stands for Public Relations Internship Mentoring and Education Program, which launched in 2015 and sponsored and with sponsorship from Fortune 500 companies as well as leading PR firms. She's listed in the who's who of every book you can imagine. She was awarded the 2011 Star Award by New York Women's Agenda, and she's named Savoy's top influential woman in corporate America. And what I love most about Judith, if that was not enough, is she serves. 
She is the president of PRSA Foundation. She's on the board of Colorcom. She's our president. She's on the advisory board of the Ron Brown Scholar Program, and the list is very long. So here is somebody who's leading at work, but leading in her communities and leading in the industry. So Judith, thank you and welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Did that make you blush? Badass. A woman in this room that needs no introduction is Meredith. Oh, I don't see sitting here. Where did she go? Oh, there you are. You're hiding. You're hiding. Um, Meredith is someone I have admired, known, and loved in this industry for many, many years. She's executive vice president and COO of the New York Times. She was named to this role in June of 2017 and is responsible for digital product, design, audience and brand, consumer revenue, advertising, live events, new product development, and I'm sure many, many other things that I'm not mentioning. Meredith began her professional career in, I love that, professional career. I'm not sure what was happening before the professional <laughs> career. She began her professional career in 1993 at, as the, uh, at, at the advisory board company in Washington, D.C. She did a, did a two-year stint at a digital ad agency. Is that where you got wise somehow and you left that world of ad agencies? Um, and website development from I-33 Communications and worked in various sales and marketing roles at Atlantic Media and Forbes before joining the New York Times. Meredith is a graduate of the Henry Crown Fellowship at the Aspen Institute, an executive committee member of the Ad Council. She's on the board of the IEB. You get a theme here. These women give back. She's a passionate advocate for everything I've ever known her to stand up for and fight for. So welcome, Meredith, to your own house. Welcome to all of you. And last but not least, the chief troublemaker, uh, Shelly Zalas. She self-diagnoses herself as the chief troublemaker. Um, she is a game changer and the founder and CEO of the Female Quotient. Uh, prior to this, Shelly, I like to say Shelly's the mother of online research. Uh, she really created what we know today as online research that has formed so much of what we do, but that began with Shelly's company, which uh, was at the time named Ipso, no, no, I've got that wrong. My company, Otex. Otex, which sold Ipsos yeah. uh, before she left and formed the Female Quotient. Today, the Female Quotient is advancing gender equality across industries. You know it is the girls' lounge at many of our conferences where Shelley brings together so many of us to talk about issues that we care about. But it's much, much bigger than that. She's consulting on behalf of companies and leading game-changing strategies for organizations and the industry to advance the the conversation that we all care so much about. She's an admired speaker, member of the Washington Speakers Bureau, skilled moderator. I've seen it firsthand. Katie Kirk, Halle Berry, Sheryl Sandberg. The list is so long. Authors. <laughs> she's the author of Forbes column. She's the co-founder of See Her. How many of you have heard of See Her? So See Her is a, is a partnership with the ANA that is really focused on changing the way that we portray women and stereotypes of all sorts in our advertising and really helping clients think about how they change that, recognizing that our content is what shapes many of people's perceptions, and we have a role as um, advertisers and media organizations to change that, and she has led that with the ANA. She's a firm believer in giving back. Her generosity is um, too much to mention. I have been a benefactor of that many, many times over. She will find any cause and any individual that she can help, and she will be the first one to do it. So that is our amazing panel tonight, and I will turn it over to you all.
Good to get into those little details. So anyway, I'm so glad you're all here tonight. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Um, I think that there has never been a more important time for women to come together to raise our voices, to raise our impact in the workplace and beyond. As Shelley has said, a woman alone has power. Together, we have impact. And she was right on the money when she said that. There's no question in my mind about it. So I am so glad to be here tonight to have this discussion with Shelley and Meredith where we can talk about women in the workplace, we can talk about what women bring to the table as individuals, and then what we can do as a pack to impact our um, equality in the workplace and to just rev up the drive to get to where we need to be, not just for ourselves, but for the women who would follow in our footsteps. I think that's incredibly important. So with that, I'm just going to dive into the questions, and I can't wait to hear the answers. <laughs> so first, we're going to do sort of current state and talk about where we are in terms of equality. Women make up almost 50% of the global population, 49.7 to be exact. And um, they make up, I think, 4% of Fortune 500 CEOs. Strange disconnect. There are actually more men named John running major companies than there are women running <laughs> major companies. Does this make any sense to anybody? I don't think so. There is a study that says that women will reach workforce equality in, I think it's 20, oh, 217 years. That's it. We all have 217 years to wait to reach workforce equality. So my question to Shelley and Meredith is, why is this equality gap so big, and why is it going to take so long to close it, according to projections? Thank you, Shelley. Whoever wants to go. We are going backwards. I mean, this is really very clear. Um, And I think a lot of the reason is we've been admiring the problems, and we have not been creating solutions for change. And we keep talking about closing the wage gap. But when you think about it, the rules were written over 100 years ago by men for men. Women just weren't in the workplace. And women came into the workplace later in life. So we're just catching up. But the truth is, legacy runs faster than reality. So if we keep waiting for this moment that one day the gap will close, it's not going to. And so, truthfully, what we talked about is it will actually take 217 years, according to predictions, to close the wage gap. It'll take over 100 years to create equality in the C-suite. And so when you think about these numbers, we talk about diversity being good for business. We know that if we close the gap, we can add $4.3 trillion to the GDP by 2025. We know all these numbers. There's nothing surprising about it. But we can't be waiting for this lightning bolt to come down from God and say, today, equal pay for equal work. We won't catch up. We all know the facts that women are paid on past performance. So if we've been making less 
and you come to your job interview and they say, what did you make in your last job? And you say 50,000. They're going to say, okay, we'll give you 55. And you're supposed to say, oh, that's awesome. Men are paid on potential. But men have been making more. So we're the schmucks coming in saying 50, <laughs> getting paid 55 when the job really pays 70. And so they're getting away with it. So we'll never catch up at that pace. So the only way we truly will is just to close that door and open a new one, equal pay for equal work. And there are a lot of laws being passed, especially in the state of California and different states, that are saying it is illegal to ask someone what they're paid with their past performance and just to announce what we are being paid. So I think that really is the issue. We are not getting to the heart of the problem. We're beating around the bush, mm -hmm. and we're thinking that nuance is going to you know, just fix itself. The only way it will be fixed is if we make definitive commitments with accountability for change inside of our organizations to just shut that door. So well said. And you raised a really important point for everybody who works in New York, and that is it is illegal now in New York for That's employers right. to ask you what you make at your current position. Yeah. So it's really all about what this job is worth and what you bring to the table. So in case anybody asks you that, you can answer in exactly the right way, you know, certainly politely, but, you know, make your point. It's not about what you made. It's about what you can do. Um, I, I want to um, add to what Shelley said, but just uh, something on what, what you just said. Um, someone once gave me the line that you, all you ever need to say when anyone asks you what you make or what you should make is compensation is a metaphor for value, and I'll leave that to you. So that's, you know, like you literally never have, what did, what did I make, what that's should good. I make? That's mm -hmm. up, that's I up to that. you. On, compensation is a metaphor for value. Period. And stop talking. Stop talking. Pause. So just literally, like, drop the mic on that. Um, let me let me go to the issue of like how we got here for a second. Wait, but finish your sentence because you said compensation is a metaphor for value. Pause, and then you're supposed to say, "I leave that up to you." And I leave that up to you. I just wanted yes. to finish. I, I leave that up to you. Like you, you know what my value is. I wouldn't be sitting here if you exactly. didn't. Um, on the issue of why we, why it's 217 years, I just, Shelley said so much of it. I just want to add, I do think, um, as many of us in this room are, are mothers, um, certainly we're daughters, but many of us are mothers or will be mothers. So much of this is like in the coding of how we came up from, from being little girls. And I think about that every day, um, many of the things that we, even as women, believe are the qualities of a leader are not the things that we were taught and socialized to do. And I find myself all day, every day, trying to, to break with some of those things. But I'm actually really optimistic. Shelly and I have been in this discussion together for five years now. We're always together. We are always together, which is why we're here. Um, we are genuinely, and we'll, we'll come to that and what, what that has meant to both of us. But um, I feel really different today. And I, I want to say why I feel different. I don't think it's going to take 217 years. I don't think it's going to take 27 years. It might in the Fortune 500 because you think about CEOs and companies, but I bet even there it won't. And, and here's why I think that. I think um, a year ago last week, um, reporters at the New York Times and a reporter at the New Yorker broke the story about Harvey Weinstein and set off a cultural reckoning that hasn't been at that sort of scale 
in a century, and that has changed how men and women think they can and should act toward one another in the workplace. So that, that's one reason, but I don't think it's the only reason. I live in a world, and I bet you do too, where technology is actually changing work faster than most businesses and human beings have the capacity to adapt. And three, I think we live in a world now where politics can't be kept kind of at an arm's length from how leadership happens outside of politics. Mm -hmm. And for all those reasons, I actually think what is required of leadership and a leader is fundamentally different today, and the whole thing needs to be broken open. And I think as we change what does a leader do, we need different kinds of people doing it. Yeah, I have to say something. I just thought of something. I never thought of this before. Part of it is being visible. Yeah. Not sharing salaries because it's not visible has made us not be accountable. Totally. And so the Harvey, you know, story made it so visible. So as you were talking, I was thinking, what if as a little girl, when you were talking about a little girl sensationalizing, you and a little boy went into an ice cream store? This is all I was thinking about when you were saying that. I'm thinking about ice cream. And you go in an ice cream store, and you both ask for a scoop of ice cream. And they give the boy two scoops. A, 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 a scoop of ice cream, and they give the girl a little dollop of ice cream. Yeah. That's really what it is. You would all of a sudden see the visible, visible yeah. difference of what you're getting. But because of the pay gap, it's been invisible. And so no one has had to really showcase that. Totally. So now we need to create this whole, like, blow it up and, and totally. call it out so that no one can hide from it. Exactly. Totally. That's a good yeah, story. That's a great point. And I think that is starting to happen. I think you touched on something that was really important, and that was about what a leader looks like, what is, what is a leader at this point? So I want to ask both of you, what qualities do women bring to the table as individuals that can be, should be embraced um, as leadership qualities? You want to go first? Sure. I, um, <laughs> humanity and humility. Yes. Like, I mean, honestly, how many women do you know that you would not say... Um, and by the way, there are lots of men who have those qualities too, but like we are socialized because um, we are often the caretakers in our homes. We're the care caretakers amongst um, broader families beyond family, you know, the, even if you're not a parent, you're still often a caretaker. So I think humanity, which is how are you feeling in this situation? What is, what is your experience? It, it, you know, we've, lived for thousands of years, women have been socialized to um, use their humanity as a strength. And so I think when there are, and, and again, I don't want to suggest, I've actually worked for, for and with some incredibly humane men who lead with that, but in general, women are socialized in that manner. And I go back to my what coding you get as a little girl, and like what, like, one of the first lessons I got as a kid was like, don't brag, it's gross, right? Like, mm -hmm. don't brag, and you probably don't have the answer. You might not have the answer. Part of why you have other people around is because you'll sort the answer together, or they have the answer, and your job is to, to draw it from them. So mm -hmm. I think humanity and humility tend to be um, uh, characteristics 
that women are shaped to be from and therefore can lead from? I think that is such a great answer because mm -hmm. women have been socialized for years to think that you know, the traits that we are brought up to have are not the same as leadership traits. They're yeah. entirely different, and they're so not. So that was wonderful. Yeah, I, I think this is what leadership looks like, yeah. truthfully. Yeah. I mean, I love that. I right? love that. I mean, this is what Together. leadership looks like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 This is what leadership looks like. And I think that, you know, I recently asked, um, we did a Men of Action Summit in the Girls' Lounge, which was really quite amazing. And we had 40 male speakers. And I asked all of them, what does a leader look like today? Two top answers, which from the Deloitte study on, on um, uh, also identified with soft skills. The two top answers were empathy and caring. Yeah. And I said, that is so amazing to me. Why don't we have job descriptions looking for CEOs and say we're looking for a compassionate, empathetic, hum human person with humility that has, um, you know, uh, that's great at collaboration, team building, and, you know, listening skills. And by the way, can also deliver a great bottom line. You know, I'd love to see that job description <laughs> totally. for a leader today. We, totally. we should rewrite that job um, description. And you know, we talk a lot about the masculine feminine qualities of leadership, not the male female, because there's plenty of men with feminine, plenty of women with masculine. The masculine, linear, assertive, decisive, analytic. We need all those skills in the workplace. The feminine, collaborative, nurturing, empathetic. Um, humanity, humility, those are much better words. Um, they're fantastic. And, you know, we, we need both. We need the masculine and totally. the feminine, totally. you know, to, to really make the world go around. But it is about collaborative. And it is about power that is shared and not power that is pushed down that will keep the best employees and also attract the best employees. And companies that don't have empathy in their DNA and create a culture of care um, have gone this far for this long, but they won't go further um, in the very near future because our millennial generation has a quality in their DNA and they do not want to work for companies that don't totally. create safe, secure, and caring culture. That's why it's not so going to take 217 years. Well, then that actually brings me to another point. We were talking about women and, and our characteristics. How do women go about, or how should women go about, promoting themselves in the workplace? Um, and what is, what is the consequence of not doing that? Yeah, I, I, I have a really strong opinion, um, which is I don't think it's about that. I really don't. I think, um, I think the co consequence is that um, there's like a, an, an idea, and, maybe, and I'm sure there's some truth to it, so I'm going to say something that many may challenge fairly. But I, I don't think the issue is about um, an inability to self-promote. I do think Shelley's point about visibility is very real, and I think it's incumbent incumbent on leaders to see that their, their best talent is visible, whoever those people are. But I think it is about women being in jobs that have high-profile results. <laughs> and I think that there are, you know, if, if you look, there are so many studies that say that um, very often when there are women in an executive suite, they're in the corporate functions, they're not in the big operating jobs with P&L responsibility, they are not... Um, the ones on the hook to run a division when that division is, is the most important division at the company. I would say the same for women, people of color, underrepresented minorities generally. And so to me, it is less about how do you 
promote, although I'm sure that is also important. But to me, it's about how do you actually ensure that you have a diverse group of people at your company, um, if you're at the top of the company, in those operating jobs and that you're giving women and other underrepresented minorities the chance to prove that they can actually get the results. And that, to me, breaks it. And like, if you're on the other side of that and you're coming up in your career, I would say put yourself in a position where, where um, it can be seen if you can deliver the result. And that is the best form of self-promotion I've ever seen. I love that. Mm. Um, I, I think that every level is very important. I think one of the biggest problems we as women have is we are taught and trained throughout our career, throughout our growing up to be nice, which is a very important quality, and we should always be nice, mm-hmm. and we should always be kind, and we should always give back with generosity in everything we do. However, we also cannot forget that money and power are not dirty words. That's right. They are taboo topics for all of us. We think that we're not supposed to achieve that. It's why girls don't want to say they're good in math. We think there's... That, no one's going to like us if we're good in math or no one's going to like us if we're strong and, and successful. Well, you'll never be strong and successful and visible if you don't understand that money and power are very important parts of your vocabulary and who you need to be, especially in business, right? Be kind along the way because that is the number one asset of a great leader that we talked yeah. about. Um, but these are important characteristics and we have that voice in our head all the time. We all talk about this. It's really true. If there's 10 things that you need to get done, if a guy can do six out of 10, he's like, yep, I got this. If a woman doesn't think she could do 10 out of 10, we got that voice in our head telling us we're not qualified, we're not good enough, we can't achieve it, we're going to fail, we you know, have too much going on everywhere else. And you know, Jack, it wasn't Jackie Kelly, it was Wendy Clark, but Jackie Kelly believes this, so you gotta <laughs> shut that bitch up in your head. And just make it go away. Shut that and bitch just realize up. that you know, everyone else has that same voice. Don't, don't, don't hold yourself back for that. So the most important asset for visibility and believing in yourself, and a different word for bragging, let's replace that word, because yeah. that isn't mm-hmm. a word in our vocabulary. Replace with confidence. Totally. Or Cheryl yeah. Sandler says, call yeah. it executive presence. Exactly. Right? Exactly. But own a different word. And yeah. then become that and be it. And, you know, no one else is going to believe in you if you don't believe in yourself first. Can I, I, I just, I'm, I love that you use the word power. And I want to say power is like a super controversial word. And it, there's a negative connotation and there's a very positive connotation. And I want to say, Shelly Zellis has a lot of power. And she uses that power to gather other people and give them a sense of confidence through togetherness. So like power, like they, like if you can make peace with like power is a good thing when well used, I think you can sort of use that in a way that doesn't have to feel or seem self-promoting or boastful. Exactly so watch this, right. watch this. We all have power in our yeah. own basis. But now watch. Hold hands. <laughs> did you just feel totally. a, an electricity? Yes. Totally. Did. That's power. Totally. This totally. is totally. power. Totally. And that's the connection. Yeah. The con- let's make a new word, connectionability, or totally. whatever it is. Mm-hmm. That's power, too. 
I agree I completely. It. That is so completely. on the money. Right? First time I've held hands yeah. on a panel. I know. The same here. <laughs> I know. Life is just so full of new experiences. This is so cool. <laughs> Anyway, um, one of the things we were talking about just now is visibility. And to me, that goes to sponsorship. Yes. That is incredibly important in women's advancement. And I, I know that in this age of Me Too, there are senior men, I don't know how many, but there are some senior men who are now totally paranoid about being alone with women, about sponsoring women. They don't want to be seen uh, dining alone with them or in a room with them, and, you know, in case people will think that something is amiss. So how do we go about sort of fighting that and making sure that we are getting the sponsorship we need? Some of which, of course, will come from women, but there are many senior men that should be sponsoring as well, and we want to make sure that they're doing it. Shelley, you have to, Shelley just ran the most extraordinary program about this, but you have to go first on this because uh, of what you just did. Well, I did something even more interesting the other day, which I found surprising. So Sheryl Sandberg just did a study with SurveyMonkey and um, found that 50% of men today don't want to work with women because they're afraid to do or say the wrong thing. Um, and let's go there because sometimes we say these things, but we don't get to what's really going on under the hood. Because I have to say, awe, terrible. And we also don't want this trend to stick and to start seeing gender floors, that there's going to be a male floor, there's going to be a female floor, and then there's going to be uh, you know, a, a gender fluid floor. Like, we, we don't want to go there. So we do need to start reversing this trend. Um, however, I, um, I did do something very interesting the other day with two men that I was interviewing, and I said to them, don't you find this alarming, you know, because men don't even want to take women for lunch because of all this. And Cheryl says, if you're not going to take a woman alone to lunch, don't take a man alone to lunch. Like, this is where we need to start going, which is really unfortunate. And so I had these two men, and very, very, very senior men that run a big bank, a CEO that runs the bank and the chairman that runs the bank. And I said to them, just out of curiosity, and it was 300 women from the bank. I said, just out of curiosity, would you today say to a woman, you look nice? I asked them. So they must have been 55 plus, 60 plus maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, of course we would. And I said, well, I'm not so sure that that would be OK with everybody. And they said, of course it would be. I said, well, for me, if you told me I look nice, I'm going to say thank you. I said, how many women in the room, well, let's play this game. How many women in the room would be upset if a man told you you look nice at work? Anybody? Go ahead. Don't be shy. You look nice. Anybody else? Okay. So at least 10 women raise their hand. So let's get to that in a minute. I, we'll, we'll open that up. But I just wanted to show the point that what might feel right for one person might not be right yeah. for someone else. And so I want to rewrite the golden rule. The golden rule today says, do unto others as totally. you'd want done to yourself. But what I would feel OK with was not going to be OK for you. So the new golden rule, in my opinion, would be, 
do unto others as they'd want done to themselves and have oh, that lens. Great. Exactly. And I love so, that. That's the I right? Love it's that. a really good one. That is a good one. I love that. I love that. That's how it's known. It's a good one. And, yep. and this is what's happening today. And a lot of the, you know, in this post movement era, I'm not going to say in the post Me Too era, it's in the post movement era. You know, we are starting to uncover these issues. And what is happening with men and why they are saying, you know, I don't want to go there, because if they say something like that, which they didn't mean, they might not have meant to be offensive, but we might take it the wrong way. I will say to women, first and foremost, first say to someone, you know, that makes me uncomfortable. Because he might not be aware, and he might need an education first before we go and say, you know, he sexually harassed me. Because then that opens a whole other you know, big conversation. So we are living in a, a world where there is more sensitivity. We are more aware of, you know, what is going on. We're more open to having the conversations. What Me Too did that was wonderful was break the silence, create consequence for bad behavior. But now we have to move forward with positive, proactive solutions for change, bringing men into the conversation where a lot of men will tell you, 34% of men today say that why are they always perceived as the bad guy and as, you know, just the assaulter, no matter what. They don't want to be known as the strong, you know, assholes. They also want to be able to, to show their sensitivity and emotion. So there are plenty of bad guys. I'm not saying that. But there are also plenty of good guys that we do need to give a little education mm -hmm. to in today's day and age. Because these guys, when I played that game with them, they're like, oh, my God, I had no idea. And they said, now we're going to be much more mindful, you know, of those kinds of things. And yeah. we're not giving that kind of education in, in corporations today because it's nuanced. It's not textbook stuff. This is really about perception and reality and everyone's individual feelings, and it matters. What was normal and acceptable and just fine then is a totally different story. Now, even if the Me Too movement had not happened, it would still be different. So I think that that education, you know, we talk about nuance, that education has to be nuanced according to generations as well. And it actually brings me to something else. We were talking about leadership and talking about the fact that there are so few women CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. I know that there are countries in Europe, and I think that there are some states in the, in the United States as well that are starting to insist on gender quotas for boards of directors. How do you feel about that? Um, so California just passed a law that um, Go California. have to have one, um, at least one woman director. I, um, I think it's really useful to legislate um, action by companies. I won't say more than that because of what I do for a living. Um, I really shouldn't comment on political things, but I think it's really useful when legislation <laughs> like that happens. Um, what I want to what I want to say though is that um, one is not enough. So and 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 I know that and and by the way that's not a reason to not legislate one. Um, you put one woman on a board or on an executive committee, and whenever she speaks, the woman said said that, and she goes, exactly. you know, it is heard that way, and she feels that way. You add two, and it's like. One of the women said that. You add three and people stop thinking about her gender 
when she contributes. So I am really interested in things that are going to expedite true inclusion and equality at the highest level, you know, all the way up. And it gets worse as you go up. I talk, you know, Shelley rightfully pointed out, this is all about every level of the workplace. But, you know, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And the problem really is worst at the top. So I am for anything that expedites more diversity and inclusion in C-suites and boardrooms in this country. I love uh, Agree. I don't want a seat at the table, though, um, because I'm a quota. I want a seat at the table because I'm the best. Um, but, and, but, and, and, but. Um, it does work. But I have to tell a story about Barry Salzberg. This is for you, Terry. Um, Terry is the chief diversity officer globally of Deloitte, and Barry was the former CEO, right? Barry Salzberg, former CEO globally, or, yeah, okay, so. I was a keynote with him. We were sharing the stage a couple of years ago. He retired, and he um, gave a speech called, you know, leadership in the modern leadership or 21st century or whatever, and my speech was called Bring Emotion to the Boardroom and how important it is to, to bring emotion. And when people tell you there's no room for emotion, of course, I write a speech, and I say bring emotion to the boardroom. And so we, we co-did it, and we went backstage, and he said, Shelly, you're going to be very excited to hear this news. And I said, what? He says, we hired our first female CEO for um, the US. And I'm like, oh my god, that is so exciting. I said, but did you hire her to fill a quota? Like I use these words. Or because she was the best, and you wanted a more inclusive, collaborative you know, team. He said, that's the reason. He says, but let me tell you a story. And I'll never forget this. And this was a few years ago, and it ties to exactly what you said. He said, on our board, we have, I'm, I'm not going to give exact numbers, but 35 people. And three out of 35 were women. And he said, and those women really never spoke up. I said, so what'd you do? He said, we got rid of five guys, added five more women. We now have eight out of 35 or eight out of 24, something like that. And I said, what happened? He said, all of a sudden, the original three that were quiet became very vocal mm -hmm. with amazing opinions. And the conversation became much more about the whys, not just the whats, and more contextual and more visual. And we started having more conversation instead of just reporting. He said, everything changed. And it was a perfect example of when you have more. It's not just it's a woman or this other woman, but it really does change the dynamic when you have diversity at its best. So totally. Absolutely true. I think that um, a woman alone might not even be heard, never mind being heard differently. But sometimes, you know, they can just be sort of overlooked, and a man will say the exact same thing that a woman did, and it's, it is taken very differently. So um, that is one reason that numbers count, and it's really both and. So you want the best, and you want to get the numbers in there as well, because that's really the only way that anything is going to change, in my humble opinion. This moment we're living in. A lot of nationalism, distrust, economic insecurity. Deserves to be questioned. Who protected the women and who protected Harvey? This moment deserves context. For these migrants, it's about survival. But most of all. He kind of indicates that he leans toward Putin. This moment deserves to be understood. This is The Daily, a podcast from The New York Times. Find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.
So now we have decided that it's not going to take 217 years to get where we need to go, which it's is a good two. thing. So Even 21 is better than 217. Okay, exactly. First two digits. Exactly. So how do we get there? What do we do? Collectively, what can we do? Um, I mean, let me... I haven't always gotten this right, um, but the best thing we can do, and I'm looking around the room and just judging on appearance, my guess is at least half the room is in the position, maybe two-thirds of the room being a hiring manager, hire a woman or a person of color. You have an open job, hire a woman or a person of color. And it is, you know, the, it, it doesn't change until the table changes. I, um, I put a woman in a very big um, new products job at the New York Times 15 months ago, and a team that um, was certainly not known for its diversity before is now, like, unbelievably diverse. Um, unbelievably diverse. So, you know, you, you, if you don't have women and people of color in hiring positions, then the people who come to your company look around and they think, well, this place is not for me. Um, exactly. This place is not for me. And I want to say, um, you know, I'm 47. I've been working for 25 years. Um, a lot of it with my head down doing that operating thing. Jackie knows this because she did. The, she's done the same thing the whole time, trying to deliver a result. And, you know, as, as late as five years ago, I don't think I understood um, that how, how important that should be to my consciousness about how I was hiring. And I certainly didn't understand the inclusivity aspect of that because even more important than hiring is does everyone who comes to the table feel like they actually belong there? And I just want to say, like, I've been on a giant journey um, about how important this is, and literally, like, I show up very differently to work every day today than I did five years ago. I love it. You hit on one of the most important points ever. Thank you. That is great. The inclusion part is so critical. You know, and I've always said that diversity without inclusion is meaningless because what happens is that you bring people in the door and you say, voila, we have diversity. Isn't this fabulous? I have hired a woman. But, you know, right. <laughs> but then if people are not being listened to, if they're not heard, if they are not, if their perspectives are not being used, then they don't feel that there's any point in their being there, and then they leave. And so what you have is a revolving door, and so it accomplishes nothing. Um, so that part about being inclusive is so critical. I, I want to say one more thing about it that um, I never get to say out loud. I think most executives um, have good intentions. Mm -hmm. um, and good intentions aren't enough. Mm -hmm. But most executives are just working their ass off to, like, deliver the result and to, like, get the hire done so the work can get done, so they can hit the number, and so they can please their boss. I, I, most, most leaders, not even most bosses. Most, and I think what we can all do together is raise the consciousness so that it's just, it's understood. And, it's, it's, um, and I do think there's work to do, even amongst the best people I know, to raise the consciousness. Absolutely. And I think everyone in this room has a big sort of, um, 
has a big role to play in that. And you shouldn't be afraid to raise it as an issue. I love that. Mm, I agree. I, I don't think leadership is about age or about title or about level. I think we all are leaders in our own regard. Yeah. And we all have the ability to activate change, big or small. It's, it's doing something. And I think the word trying needs to exit everyone's vocabulary. You can't try to do something. You're either going to do it or you're, you're not. You know, if I, if, I, if I put this on the floor, which I'm not going to pick up again because it's too hard to get back <laughs> on this chair. But if I told you to try to pick it up, you're either going to do it or you're not going to do it. Right. So I think that, you know, we need to have a conscious mindset. I think we need to have accountability yes. at every level and for every action. For diversity, yeah. we need accountability. It should be part of your compensation package. If you get rewarded for something, you're going to be more inclined to do it versus it just kind of, well, if I get around to it. No, exactly. do it. It's your responsibility. Accountability for closing the gap. Accountability for diversity and inclusivity in your workforce. Accountability for your supplier. The Girl Scouts, they told me the other day, they spend like $2 billion on vendors with Cookie, cookies and stuff. And then they looked at their vendors and realized, here they have the Girl Scouts empowering young girls. Their vendors weren't even diverse organizations. Yeah. $2 billion. Wow. What do you think happens? They pick up the phone and say, hey, if you don't have a diverse workplace, I'm not going to use you as my supplier. I'm going to find another cookie maker. It's Money great. talks. Mm -hmm. And then you look at sponsorships, and you look at mentorships, and you look at coaching. Well, let's stop just fixing the women. We also have to fix the men. You know, like we're not broken. You know, there's nothing wrong with us. You know, so let's let's like level the playing field. And then you look at culture and values and policies. Well, let's create policies that work for everyone to thrive in the workplace and bring their best selves to the workplace and stay in the workplace. And training, it ain't in a textbook. You sign this dotted line that you took a, a sexual harassment training from a textbook, they don't work. We're wasting our time. We need to do mindset training. Exactly. And then you look at leadership and values and communication and accountability. There has to be accountability, not just top down, but bottom up and all around. We all have to create a culture of respect in this workplace, and we all have that responsibility. And none of us can point fingers at someone else and say, it's your responsibility, it's your responsibility. It's, it's my responsibility. I will take responsibility. And if we each take responsibility for change and we hold ourselves accountable, then I think we can actually make a big difference much faster and go a lot further, especially when we're together. Amen. Thank you. That was wonderful. I want to thank my two best friends. What an amazing job, both of you. Just incredible. I'm so happy that we had this conversation. It was wonderful. We love getting to be here together. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah, you get one of those, too. <laughs> and now I just would like to open up the floor to questions and see if anybody has anything they'd like to ask. Okay. Um, I'm a senior at Ithaca College studying journalism and sports studies. Awesome. So I just wonder if you have any advice for when I'll be the youngest person in the newsroom and trying to navigate that while also finding my voice. As So... Being a like being your age and stage working in a newsroom, yeah. make make great things. Like literally, I, I any and I actually would say that to anyone in a creative 
profession, like show that you can make something, which might be how you report. It might be that you can, you know, make an infographic in a way that people haven't thought of. Like I do think in advertising, in journalism, in anything else that involves writing, like distinguishing yourself creatively, which really goes to like showing your original thought is the is the best way to sort of be noticed and, and sort of found early in your career. I would also say just like do do whatever within the bounds of appropriate is asked of you. Because as we I mean when I was 22 I was in a very entry level job and like just showing your commitment to the work and whatever that work is, showing that like you really care about its quality, that is that will be noticed. Great advice. I'm so we glad we have people right out of college so here. It's amazing. Thanks I for being here. I love the whole age range here. Uh, I have a question. What role do you think government should play? I mean, besides, you know, saying how many people should be on a board, should there be more things? Like, you know, uh, oh, <coughs> so should there be other government yeah. um, regulations? I'll, I'll, I'll give in you terms a of, yeah, salary or transparency. Yeah. I'll give you like a few that. that I feel incredibly passionate about. Um, until we fix family leave in this country, um, see, here I go talking about policy things, but this one I'm so passionate about, I'm not going to be shy. We're until not going to tell either. And, until, we, until we fix family leave in this country, um, I think we will always have equality issues in the workplace because I think mm-hmm. more often than not, it is women who are forced to make very, very difficult choices. Um, and I think family leave needs to not just be about parenting. It needs to be about being a caregiver. Mm-hmm. Shelley taught me the expression, culture of care. Like, that extends to how you show up as a whole person into a workplace. So I think there's a lot there um, about policy. Um, I think transparency around compensation, I haven't thought enough about it. I'll say, I think it's probably important in some ways I think there are different labor markets for different kinds of jobs and different kinds of circumstances that make compensation disparities happen that are often fair and appropriate. And so I think if we try and stamp out all compensation differences, we stamp out kind of excellence and we we end up in a place of mediocrity. So I think that's a really confusing issue. That was a great question. Yeah. And very nuanced answer, for sure. Thank you. Any more questions? I have more of a comment, I guess, just to, I want to go back sure. to what was being talked about earlier about you look nice. Does mm-hmm. that offend or not offend? My feeling on that, and I don't know if it's a, if it's a place of, a, of offense, I think it's more of cultural conditioning. I heard somebody comment on this recently, and it really, like, I was like, wow. When men approach each other in professional situations, they lead with, hey, man, that was a great job on that, on that, you know, that report you did, or great job on that, that new account. Even us women together, we lead with, you look very nice today. Totally. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, that's a great outfit. Mm-hmm. Or the thing that I hate as somebody who happens to be a thicker woman, you look like you've lost weight. Why do, why do you think that's a compliment to me? Please don't say yeah. that to me, especially if I haven't lost weight. <laughs> <laughs> my first thought is, oh my God, the memory of these fat. Oh my God. <laughs> 
I think that's a too big. Instead of, instead of acknowledging ourselves as professionals, I think that's why some women get offended in a professional environment. They want so to be great. recognized for their for their accomplishments, right. not for what they look like. That is such an interesting. Really point. well said. So I have a number of things that I'd love to say, but I'm not going to go into all of them right now. But so tagging off of what you just said. Um, you know, I've been involved in a number, a number of cultural diversity trainings in organizations, and um, they're weak. You know, I find them to be almost insulting. And what would it look like to have a gender-friendly, um, or whatever way you'd want to term it, education? You're talking about training the men differently. What would it look like to be most effective? Mm. I do them. Um, I would never call them training. <laughs> Uh, and they are more, we all have bias. It's first acknowledging that and, you know, uncovering the stereotypes that piss us off the most. Um, and then going into, you know, and I call them boot camps because we need to all get a quality fit. And that takes work. It's not going to happen overnight. But it really is, um, I really can't stand the word unconscious bias. Because if I tell you, that there's a wage gap and that there's, you know, uh, women are hired on this and men on that and all. It's not unconscious, it's conscious. So, like, just that whole concept seems like it's giving us an excuse to say it's not our fault because it's subliminal and it's unconscious and we don't mean it, right? The first is to say we mean it and to be conscious of our unconscious, even if it means getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. So we got to get a little uncomfortable. And, you know, I, I, I want to go back. And it's very immersive and very experiential because it's also about respect with one another. So I do them with 20 to 30 leaders at a time so that everyone is, you know, looking at everyone for who they are as humans with mm -hmm. humility. I, I love that, Meredith. And I want to go back to your um, other question that you asked about um, why do men say, you know, great, great job and women are like, oh, you look nice. Um, one of the things... I always quote Sarah Jessica Parker, trying to be a man is a waste of a woman. You know, there are, <laughs> women do operate yes. differently. Not that it's bad. I always say men do deals, women create relationships. And our whole being and our life is in one big thing. I don't compartmentalize work. And, you know, it's, it's, it's why we're so, we share the good, bad, and the ugly. You know, and, um, but we also talk about I mean, so, great job. I mean, Meredith is the best moderator in the universe. And I'll say, oh, my God, that was amazing, and how we uncovered these topics and how we... But women process information differently, and that's okay. And by the way, I could cut to the chase and say, good job. You closed a big deal. I want to talk about other stuff, too, you know? And, and that's why we're forever friends, no matter where we go, because we're girlfriends. And that is just how we do things. I don't really hear men, you know. Someone told me a great story about she came home, her husband was laying on the sofa, and she said, hey, how was your day? He says, good. And she says, you know, what are you, what are you doing? He said, nothing. <laughs> what are you thinking about? Nothing. <laughs> Can you imagine thinking about nothing? <laughs> really? I'm like, God bless you. That's awesome that you're so black and white and linear. I don't operate like that. Exactly. You know, we, we just come from different planes. So I don't think it's a criticism of, you know, that. I think it's just how we have these relationships and, and, and friendships. But we could also go to that yeah. linear. I don't think it's yeah. criticism either. The comment was just that it tends 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Can I? Yeah. To a woman. Instead uh-huh. of it being right. three comments later. Mm. It's yeah. just it, women to women, men to women. It's just how can, we're culturally conditioned to lead. Can, yeah. I, can I just, I, I, I want to acknowledge that. I think there's real truth to that. And mm-hmm. I think if I go back to like the codes that we learned as girls, we played with dolls, we did their hair, we dressed them. Like I am so, and I'm some, you know, I, like I've, I wish I could like unload my vanity. I can't. Like I, and that's probably some of how I was coded. But I am so conscious about the fact, my sister and I talk about this all the time, like the amount of fucking time we spend trying to look nice um, and and because that feels like a necessity, like I, I do think that in in a more inclusive world, even the definition of what that means becomes a very different thing and I think we need to acknowledge that um, that women, we many of us did not grow up thinking about how interesting we were or funny or what we were capable of. And we grew up having been um, part of a world where there was a lot of objectification of women. And so I think that's why, I mean, I literally, Jackie walked in and I was like, you look great. And Shelly mm-hmm. walked in and I was like, your outfit is beautiful. You're like, <laughs> Why, your eyelashes are like, like, But I, I'm, I didn't say that. But you know what? Like, I'm with you. Like that's some like we're not. There's nothing like mean or bad. But I appreciate that. That's like not bringing out the best in anyone. And it goes back to the original: is we're trying to be nice, exactly. Versus you know, go straight, you know, and talk about money and power. That always comes after. So first it's the shoes, and then it's the money. I just want to add to that because I've been sort of listening to this conversation, and I do think that a lot of times with women, it's their way of acknowledging that you are good. And especially when women yeah. don't know each other. Mm-hmm. So it's a stranger and you're impressed with what they do. And, and instead of saying, wow, that was a really great speech or whatever it is, you really look great today. And I, I've, I, I, I've just noticed this for, for a while. I've even caught myself and I go, why do I do that? Why don't I just yeah, say totally. yeah. that was But it's that I think it's that bonding thing. It, and mm-hmm. it's also totally. relationships are important in business. It's how I've made a living, quite frankly. So maybe that's part of that, how you get ahead too. Maybe, I don't know. But it, it is certainly something that I've been very conscious of myself that I lead with it, right or wrong. I totally get it. about this from another standpoint because I think about this a lot. And I think about it evolutionary-wise. Because like, when I think about the whole brain science and the way that we've evolved as human beings, I mean, let's think about it. Women are, were gatherers and men were hunters. And so we had to keep the tribe safe and alive. And so we had to get along with other women in order yeah. to do that. Men had to go out and find the food. And so they needed to just be competitive and be forward thinking and, and really go out there. So I think that it is a cultural thing, but it's an evolutionary oh, wow. cultural. Mm-hmm. I mean, our brains are wired certain ways in the way that we are now working on reframing and rewiring things. But it's going to take an awful long time when you think at how long tribally we oh, had right. to create bonds so that we, our children could live. I mean, that's virtually what we were doing. And that's what we continue to do. And men didn't have to do that. They just had to go out with our spears and hunt. And they're yes. still doing it. <laughs> exactly. Another question back there. Yeah, just to follow up on that same thing, I mean, Deborah Tannen did 
did her research when she was looking at children playing. Um, and, you know, you think about girls on the playground and, you know, what are girls doing? We're sitting around chatting and what are boys doing? They're playing a game. And when you play a game, there's fundamentally a winner and a loser. Um, and she was looking at kids really young to see sort of before we're getting these socialization messages. Um, and her fundamental principle is that women are about connections and men are about hierarchy. Yeah. So mm-hmm. before I, you know, yep, so it, totally. to some degree it makes sense. So this totally. clothing thing is a form, form of a connection. Totally. Right. And then we can get to work as opposed to great job. The men are like, hey, you know, am I better than you? So, you know, it's sort of taking that one step and... You know, so there's not such a bad thing about saying you look great. And you do look great. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. But I think that's a great point. I really do. It's also all the media. You know, we talk about hashtag see her. Media defines culture. And confidence starts at the age of five. And the impressions, Mm -hmm. as Meredith keeps talking about, you know, uh, being uh, uh, acculturated that way. You know, this is how you grew up. This is what's happening, which is why, by the way, we're trying to bring more visibility to women doing all kinds of things totally. and, you know, being badass and funny and smart. One percent of women in television are portrayed as funny. Less than one percent, which is... Pathetic. Pathetic. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there were, I remember there was an article in Vanity Fair some years ago asking, are women funny? And I thought, seriously? Like, is this the Pleistocene era that we're actually asking this question? But, you know, it goes to that sort of cultural... Um, divide that that people were raised with that just makes no sense. Um, I wanted to say something about um, being empowered in power. You are very powerful women, and one of the reasons you're powerful is not only because of your experience, but because you speak up. You're very eloquent speakers, and I was wondering, we actually, most of us women, I think, I may be wrong, are really the silent majority. Mm-hmm. You are the minority that makes difference and empowers. And my question is, how do we use the power of speaking to make the changes? Because if we are the silent majority, we aren't going to make too many changes. It's going to take 200, 200 <laughs> years. But I think that being able to express your opinions the way you are, you are great models role models for us. How do we use that to empower other women in this group, at least in this group? You know, um, you don't grow up with, with this. It's, right. not, um, it's not one of those things. I don't think I was, you know, thank you for that, by the way. I don't think I had this voice until I had it. And, you know, I, I really, <laughs> I eat a lot of chocolate. <laughs> I, I love yeah. chocolate. I, you know, I, I, I always say when purpose meets passion, you're unstoppable. It's just yeah. an expression yeah, that I, I wrote because that is the truth. I believe so much in what I'm doing, and I won't stop. And I was retired. I'm, I'm not retired anymore because I, I found my voice, and I realized this is just what I need to do. And I will keep doing it. It's my purpose. I'm very passionate about it. And, you know, and, and I, I really also wrote this expression. We're better together. Yeah. I'm telling mm-hmm. you, we, we play off each other. And a lot of that is because we've developed. I'm so lucky. I didn't have girlfriends in business before. Mm-hmm. I never did. I was alone my whole career. 
my whole career. I have 17,000 girlfriends now. You do. And, you know, you do. It, so it, it's great. true. And we feed off each other with our voices. And you can see, we can, we can just finish sentences and then some and add that. And then wherever, you know, they're going, I'm going with them. So they'll start the new conversation. I'm going right where they go. And then we amplify each other. And when you amplify each other, your voice gets stronger. Your passion gets deeper. Your purpose becomes more impactful. And all of a sudden you say, did I really just say that? And it just is what happens because mm -hmm. you genuinely care. And you know, we all talk about having an authentic voice. It's not an authentic voice. Authentic isn't made up word. It's a real voice. I really care. And I care because I've had a lot of these experiences in life. I've been there, done that. The best way to have a voice is based on real life experiences. You can't make this shit up. Been there, done that. <laughs> you know? And if we all share with one another, then we don't have to keep recreating the wheel. We can keep going like that further, 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 further. And, and I think that's what's yeah, happening. Absolutely. I, I, I'm going to add one small thing to that. My husband works in sports, and he always says um, to our son, you know, you miss all the shots you don't take. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I, I just want to say, like, the, you know, when I was 23 and 24 and 25 and I had to get up in a room full of business people and talk, my voice quavered. I couldn't, like, I would feel, like, hot in my head. Like, I could go on and on. And even at, you know, 47, you know, if I'm not well prepared for something, it like, I'm not great, but you just have to do it. And I believe, so I'm just giving, like, a very practical piece of advice, you only get good at it by doing it. That is so true. You have to do the thing you're... If you're afraid of. You just have to exactly. do it. Yep. It helps. So many questions. You yeah. first, then you, then you. Yes. Yeah. So I turned 50 this year. Oh, my God. You look so good. See, right? I did it again. <laughs> <laughs> and I pulled up stakes and moved to a brand new city for a new job that didn't work out. Oh. And um, I would love to hear, like, one of the things that I have found really difficult is... I'm one of those people that think 1990 was 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I would say 27, but honestly, probably about 35. Um, but I really do worry about the age gap and looking for work. Yeah. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts about not only, I, I think it's a problem for men and women, but I think mm -hmm. for women, it's bigger issue. Yeah, it is. And so yeah. I would just love to hear some, I don't know, inspiring words about, um, I still have a lot to give. Yeah. And so I, I would just love to hear your perspective. I'm, I'm not going to say anything terribly helpful, and I'll be brief, but I just want to say I am deeply worried about this issue. I'm, Shelly and I, and Jackie, we all roll in a circle. We know many, many of our peers who have lost their jobs in the last couple of years and cannot get other ones. I, um, so I'm like super troubled and I don't feel like I know as many men who I could say that about, although I, like, it's, it, I'm, I'm not sure that it's about gender, but I do wanna say, I think there's a, I'm, I'm not being short, I'm just talking, but I think there's a giant issue of the work is so different today. The work is changing so fast. And I think broadly, like literally reskilling yourself all the time to be able to do the new thing 
is the most important thing. And then finding a community of people who will introduce you at, you know, based on the skills that you have. And always having- And you're in one now. Exactly. You're in one exactly. now. Yep, and always having a current frame of reference, you know, so that you're, for instance, you said, like, you thought 1990 was, was 10 years ago, facetiously, and my husband was like, the same way. But I think that it's really helpful to have a very current frame of reference all the time. Yeah, um, because it confounds that expectation that, well, you know, she's 50, and so this means that she's living in the past. That doesn't mean you're living in the past. So you just want to make sure that that is something that you lead with also, that you could find that helpful. I think also you got to write your own brand brief at this stage yeah, of your life. Yeah. Because I'm 56. I rewrote my whole life at 53. My new company's three years old. I made my own new job that I happen to love, um, but I had no idea. Um, but you got to rewrite your brand brief because there is something about experience and wisdom um, of, of, of that you have that young people don't. So you can't look at what you're not, but you need to look at what you are and really own that strength. And so having that talent of managing people and managing teams, and that's wisdom that is priceless. And so rewrite your brand brief instead of what's your you know, to-do list is make your to-be list and, and write who you really are. You're a great manager of people and da, 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 and that you're collaborative and you love to bring in different age groups to working together and you don't mind you know, working with younger people. Like this is the first time in history we have five generations in the workplace. Gen Z coming in, traditionalists going out but retiring later. And I, I, I wanna add because you said inspire do you want inspiration or do you want the truth? The truth is, it does suck and it is hard. It's not easy. And finding a job at this stage is not easy. And that's why don't go down the path you've been going. Redirect. Rewrite your brand brief. And position yourself differently. Because your wisdom is something that should not go away and you should not hide. You should celebrate your age because your age has wisdom with experience. And that's a very powerful thing. That's a great point. Hi, I just want to piggyback um, on the last two, but I wanted to add something about inclusion. Um, actually, my tagline is a voice um, for those who don't, because I was a Wall Street trader in the 80s when women weren't, and through a, a terrible tragedy, lost just everything and became a women's and gender studies professor. Um, at 57 years old. Uh, so rebranding, but um, so that is what I do. I have a voice for those who don't, and, and we're talking about inclusion. And one of the things I do faculty training, and I'll be at Pratt Institute tomorrow, is about the LGBT and sensitivity for coworkers, because it's not just our students, but we find that our staff and faculty are also bullied and, and violently harassed also. Um, so it's just something, you know, adding to the inclusion, but I found a voice not just for myself, but for everybody else. And well, I love it. Well done. That is That's great. a beautiful note to really end on. Great. So what I love about New York Women in Communications is we like to, to say that this is where we keep it real, and I so appreciate the questions, the thoughtfulness, the vulnerability that everybody shows when we come together and try to figure out um, answers to this. So thank you. Thank you for hosting. It's thank our you pleasure. For thank you. Thanks for being here.